think what a lot of people don't appreciate when they walk on the beach and they see the seashells, they don't appreciate just how complicated it is that those organisms were able to grow those shells in such incredible detail at the microscopic level. These are not just random occurrences. This is high quality architecture and design that evolution has done over literally 500 million years. Climate change poses an existential threat to the future of the planet, but the solutions to address it are often cost ineffective, hard to develop, fraught with political disagreement, or all of the above. Even as clean energy technologies have become cheaper and more practical, key questions remain. Will these efforts be enough to beat the clock and avoid irreversible damage? What do we do about all the carbon already in the atmosphere accumulated over the decades? With his years of experience working at the intersection of science and policy, Harvard geology professor Daniel Schrag is uniquely qualified to tackle these challenging issues. In this final episode of the Veritas Lab, Professor Schrag gives us a tour of climate change through Earth's history, from the first ice ages millions of years ago to the human-induced global warming we are experiencing today. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. Daniel P. Schrag is the Sturgis Hooper Professor of Geology at Harvard University, Professor of Environmental Science and Engineering, and Director of Harvard's Center for the Environment. He also co-directs the Program on Science, Technology, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Professor Schrag studies the relationship between past, present, and future patterns of climate change, as well as energy technology and policy. From 2009 to 2017, Professor Schrag served on President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schrag. We're really excited to speak with you and learn more about your thoughts on climate policy and climate science. It's great to be here with you. So Congress will likely be divided over the next four years. And even within the Democratic Party, there are disagreements about how to tackle climate change. How much hope is there for progress on this issue? And what are the immediate first steps on the long road to decarbonization? So this year in 2020, a lot of people don't realize that nearly 75% of new electricity generating capacity. So new large-scale generating capacity is actually wind and solar. 75%. And this is during a time when the president of the United States hates wind and solar and loves coal. And yet 75% of what's being built is wind and solar. Why is that? It's because it's actually cheap. It's the best choice for a lot of utilities right now. And that's really exciting. This is really the first time in history when that's been the case. Wind and solar are cheap. And so I think the good news is that without doing much uh, during the Trump administration, more uh, wind and solar have been built than during the Obama administration. And despite Trump's support for coal, there's been a, as big a decline in the four years of the Trump administration in coal use as in eight years of the Obama administration. And that's not because 
of anything the government does. It's just a reminder that decisions in the energy sector are made, that government's important, but government doesn't decide what happens. There's a lot of decisions that are just made by the industry. So, so going forward, the question is, how can we keep the pedal to the metal? How can we accelerate even faster? And there are a number of things that people are, are thinking about, and it'll be very interesting to see. But, but I wouldn't use the campaign promises from the last six months of the Biden campaign as any guide to what's going to happen in the future. I think it's going to be much more complicated. So while it's promising that wind and solar are becoming increasingly cost-effective, government involvement will be necessary to accelerate things. Can you lay out broadly your thoughts on how the government should aim to make progress on climate change moving forward? Well, I think what you have to understand is that there are different government mechanisms for different technologies. Getting to zero, getting rid of fossil fuel in our energy system requires many different energy technologies and many different innovations, technologies that we don't even have today. So for example, what are we going to do about airplanes and jet fuel? What are we going to do about shipping, you know, giant tankers and freighters and, and all of the world's ocean transport? What about trains or long distance trucking? Those are hard questions where it's not even clear what the winning technology is. In my, uh, university-wide climate change class that's also a gen ed class. Um, I actually make students think about these issues. I make them design quantitatively a low-carbon energy system. And what's great about that is that um, if I just lecture on what a low-carbon energy system looks like, students might take notes and think about it as my opinion. The great thing about actually doing the exercise is the students get a much better understanding of what this really is about. And they also appreciate how hard it is. So when you hear somebody like Bernie Sanders saying, oh, I'm gonna decarbonize by 2030, most people don't know what that means. What does that require? How many windmills does that mean you have to build? How many solar panels? How fast do you have to switch over to electric vehicles? And what do you have to do with airplanes and trucks and ships. Um, and I think when you actually look at the numbers and when you try to actually design a low carbon system, most students come away, I think, with a much more honest sense of how big the mountain is we have to climb. And then in the course, we talk about how you climb it. And that's, that's where we are today. How do we get started? How do we take the first few steps? And so, for example, for wind and solar, as we said, they're cheap today. So there are simple things you can do to accelerate their, their deployment. Um, they are ready for deployment. We just need to build more of them. One is by adding tax incentives for people who build them. That's, that's government tax incentives. That, that has certainly been a very important part of wind and solar development over the past 20 years. Um, but another way is to shut down the dirty stuff. So putting EPA regulations on mercury and on particles from coal plants will put more pressure to shut down the old dirty coal plants. And in their place, what are you going to build? Mostly wind and solar. So, so that is, those are two different strategies. One is sort of focused on the new capacity, and the other is shutting down the old capacity. Both can be really effective. Um, but outside of electricity, 
There are some other technologies that are really close to ready for broad deployment. It looks to me at least, and I think to many others, like electric vehicles are ready to pop. Uh, European automobile companies are coming out with more and more electric vehicle options. BMW just announced that all of their factories in Germany are going to be devoted to electric vehicles. They won't be making any more. After, I think, five or ten years, they won't be making any more internal combustion engines in Germany. Um, GM says that they're going to have 40% of their cars sold will be EVs in five years. I am not sure I believe that, but I think it's very exciting. And then there are other technologies like hydrogen-powered trucks or advanced biofuels or a whole bunch of other things, maybe advanced nuclear power, that are still not ready for broad deployment. There are, they require more research and development, and that's the role of the federal government especially. And so there's a lot of work the federal government can do to support the development of these new technologies that maybe 10 or 20 years from now, hopefully sooner, um, they will be at the place where wind and solar or electric vehicles are today. So we've talked about strategies to develop more clean energy, but I wanted to dive further into strategies to get rid of the dirty stuff, as you described it, that has already been released into the environment. You've extensively studied carbon sequestration, which is the process of capturing and storing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and it's one way of combating climate change. How does the process work, and what are the challenges and benefits to implementing carbon capture on a large scale? So carbon capture and storage is the idea that you can take fossil fuel or non-fossil fuel like biomass, for example, and in an industrial process that produces CO2, like electricity generation, you can grab the CO2 instead of putting it into the air and capture it, compress it, and inject it into a geological repository. There's been a lot of work on what appropriate geological repositories are. I've worked on one on the um, offshore between... Uh, sort of Long Island and South Carolina along the East Coast, the Outer Continental Shelf, we can store vast amounts of carbon dioxide there. There are also lots and lots of sedimentary basins in the Western and Central US that are totally appropriate for injecting vast amounts of carbon dioxide. So there's plenty of space underground to inject the CO2, and it's a very safe thing to do. We've actually been doing that for many decades through something called enhanced oil recovery, where you inject more CO2 underground to extract more oil. So the oil industry has a lot of experience injecting CO2 underground. So this is something that is eminently doable. This is not you know, some new technology that requires lots of development. This is ready to go. It's just a little bit expensive. And so you have to you know, wait until society is willing to pay the cost. But carbon capture and strategy is a very important thing still going forward in several respects. First of all, in the electricity sector, if you use natural gas and captured the carbon and produced electricity that way, that could compete with nuclear energy and could be a form of dispatchable electricity that could support or back up wind and solar. So when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, you can't just shut down the country and you need to have dispatchable power, carbon capture and storage on natural gas plants could be a good option there. Um, 
Another important role is for certain industrial processes. For example, chemicals plants, fertilizer plants, cement plants. Um, these are, are, are processes. Currently, fertilizer plants use lots of natural gas and produce a stream of CO2. Um, uh, cement plants take calcium carbonate and heat it up and produce carbon dioxide. And so those are all plants that produce carbon dioxide and could use carbon capture and storage to reduce their emissions. There's a final point, though, that's, I think, maybe even more important, which is that many scenarios um, in the future call for negative emissions for the world. What I think a lot of people don't understand is that just getting to zero is an absolutely critical goal, but it doesn't solve the problem because the carbon dioxide we've already put into the atmosphere is going to cause the earth, cause climate change to keep going for thousands of years. Ice will keep melting. The Earth's already warmer than it's been for millions of years. And if you, if you just stop emissions, that means that the problem's not getting any worse. But it's not getting better either. So what you need to do is start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so carbon-negative emissions also will require carbon capture and storage as well. Now that you've given us some context about where clean energy is headed in the future, we also wanted to look back at your time on President Obama's Council of Advisors for Science and Technology. During this time, you advised the president on a whole host of issues from energy policy to STEM education. I'm just trying to imagine, what was that experience like? So let me just say that it was an incredible honor to be asked to serve on that council. I was the youngest member of the council, and there were a lot of very wise and thoughtful colleagues of mine who, who um, so I learned so much from that experience. I also think we were incredibly fortunate, and we were mostly pretty successful and impactful, but it wasn't because of us. I think the biggest reason we were effective was because of President Obama. PCAST, or the Council for Advisors in Science and Technology, or we call it PCAST, um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny organization because it doesn't have authority by itself. It, its authority is that it advises the president. It gives the president essentially a view from the outside. We were, except for, president, except for John Holdren, who co-chaired PCAST, and was, and was President Obama's science advisor. He's now a professor at the Kennedy School. He was before the Obama administration too. Um, but other than John, we were all special government employees, meaning we didn't get paid. We all had jobs. Um, the group included Eric Schmidt from Google, uh, Rick Levin, who was the president of Yale at the time, uh, my friend Jim Gates, who's a physicist who was at University of Maryland and is now at Brown, um, lots of, of brilliant, thoughtful people. Susan Graham, who's a computer scientist from Berkeley, who was on the Harvard Corporation for many years. This was a great group of people, and we worked really hard. So in previous PCAST, during the Clinton administration, for example, I think PCAST published seven reports. We published, in eight years, 39 reports. So we worked really, really hard on lots of different topics. But the reason we did that was that we were empowered by the president. We didn't have authority. Nobody had to talk to us. Nobody had to listen to us. The reason 
agencies and departments in the government listen to us is because President Obama listened to us. He liked us. He would, we would be scheduled to meet with the president for half an hour and suddenly it would be 45 minutes or an hour. And the president's schedule is actually pretty fiercely kept and he would delay it to spend more time with us. Um, we probably met with him, well, I've actually lost count, which is a good measure of how often it was. Something between 15 and 20 times over eight years, which is, um, which is a lot. So that was really, really interesting and really fun. And it was an, also an experience to work on things, as you say, outside of just climate and energy. I did get to help draft the big letter to President Obama on climate change at the end of 2012 and the beginning of 2013. And that was awesome. I loved that experience. But I also wrote a report on the future of agricultural research in this country. And that was incredibly interesting too with my, with my friend and colleague, Barbara Schall, who's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis and a great uh, bot, uh, botanist and plant geneticist. So this was a, this was a very, this was an incredible experience and I just learned so much from it. That sounds absolutely incredible. In addition to climate and energy policy, we'd also love to ask you about the more scientific questions your lab is exploring. On the broadest level, how does your research in geology inform your understanding of the history of climate change, stretching all the way back to 600 million years ago, before the appearance of recognizable animal life, when climate change was in fact even more cataclysmic than it is now? Uh, so, so I was trained in geochemistry, and I am a geochemist. That means I use the chemical signals in rocks and sediments and trees and corals to try to reconstruct what the history of the oceans and the history of the environment, history of climate were back through geologic time. And that's how I got interested in climate. And when I left graduate school, I was a student at UC Berkeley, um, I, I moved to be an assistant professor at Princeton University. And I taught at Princeton for three and a half years. And then I moved to Harvard. When I moved to Harvard, I was working on Pleistocene ice ages, which are the ice ages that have occurred over the last million years or so. And I was curious about some of the important problems there. It's still some fascinating questions about how those ice ages worked. People sometimes forget a mere 20,000 years ago, where I'm sitting in Cambridge was under more than a kilometer of ice. It was a very different world. And uh, that was just 20,000 years ago. So we've had these incredible climate changes over Earth history. And to me, it's one of the few ways that we can um, know about climate change that isn't through models. Because, you know, models are only as good as, as um, the data and the, and the physics that go into them. And the Earth's a very complicated system. So I think we have a lot more confidence in understanding climate change by looking at the geologic past. So to ask about a concrete example, um, you developed this really influential snowball earth hypothesis, which states that earth's oceans and land surfaces were completely covered by ice from the poles to the equator at least twice in earth's history. Could you tell us more about this theory? When I moved to Harvard, I had a colleague here named Paul Hoffman. Paul was a geology professor. He was the Sturgis Hooper professor of geology before I was. In fact, when I 
um, got that name chair, it made me a little sad because um, it was Paul's chair and it meant that Paul was leaving because Paul retired and now lives in Victoria. I, I really loved that that man. I still do. So Paul and I were both night owls and we would uh, often on my way home at two or three in the morning, I would stop by Paul's office with my dog and we would talk often for an hour or two. And Paul had been working in Namibia on these glacial deposits. These were not like the Pleistocene ice ages. This was what some people thought was a global ice age, but nobody really knew much about it. And Paul had these ideas. There had been some previous ideas about a global glaciation and people had used the term snowball earth. But together over the period of, of really the first winter when I got here, um, in the, in, the, in the, I guess it was the February, January, February, March of 1998, um, Paul and I spent a lot of time talking and there was kind of a eureka moment where all these pieces fell together and we had this idea about the snowball earth and specifically a series of observations that supported that this actually had happened. Um, it wasn't just a crazy idea. We actually could prove that it had happened, not just once, but multiple times in earth history. It was a you know story about catastrophe and redemption. And the interesting thing about the story of the snowball earth, this was a global glaciation where the entire earth was covered with ice and it stayed that way for millions, maybe tens of millions of years. And the fascinating thing about it is that right in the aftermath, at the end of it, that's when multicellular animals first appear in the, in the geologic record. Now, they may have been there before, but they were kind of tiny. But certainly after the snowball melts, that's when they radiate. That's when you see all the different um, variety of life. And that's when life gets into high gear in terms of large multicellular animals. And that's just, to me, was a fascinating coincidence. It was such a, uh, an interesting thing. And it turns out now, 20 years, 22 years later, we have a variety of theories for why that happened. We think it's connected to atmospheric oxygen, that the, that the snowball earth triggered a jump in atmospheric oxygen that allowed life to get big. And that's a great story about the evolution of life and the evolution of the earth. That's super fascinating. Building off of that, more recently, you've been looking in even more depth at the Proterozoic climate. Specifically, you're studying how levels of atmospheric oxygen fluctuated during that time and how that might be linked to phenomena like snowball earth and the phosphorus cycle. What have you learned about the converging relationship between geological, atmospheric, and biological processes? So, so to me, some of the work that I'm proudest of over the last decade is the work I've done with, with a student of mine named Tom Laxo. I was teaching a course with a couple of graduate students who were finishing. And Tom took the course as well. And we were reading papers about atmospheric oxygen and the history of atmospheric oxygen. And I could just see Tom's eyes lit up. And I said to him, you know, Tom, you're working on the wrong subject. You need to work on the thing that you're excited about. And so we started working on atmospheric oxygen. And the, to me, the great question that we really didn't have an answer to was, why did oxygen behave the way it did? Early in Earth history, we know until about 2.4 billion years ago, there was essentially no oxygen in the atmosphere. It may have been hydrogen rich. There was, there was essentially no oxygen at all. 
Life, we think, evolved much earlier, 3.3, maybe 3.5 billion years ago. So for a long time, all of life was anoxic. And then at 2.4 billion years ago, we call that the great oxidation event. Suddenly, oxygen jumped up. Now, when it jumped up, it didn't come anything close to modern levels. It jumped up to maybe 1% of what it is today. But from the Proterozoic, from the start of the Proterozoic around 2.4 billion years ago, for the next, uh, well, close to 2 billion years, until about 600 million years ago, oxygen was around 1% of current levels. And then we think soon after, if not during, the snowball Earth around 600 million years ago, the second of the two snowball Earths that occurred in the Neoproterozoic, Oxygen jumped up to something, maybe not quite its normal value, maybe it was a quarter of its normal value, but certainly a lot closer to its normal value. And that's what allowed animals to get big. Um, so you have this pattern of, of very low oxygen, essentially no oxygen, and then low oxygen, and then high oxygen, right? So you could think of it as low or zero medium high, or zero low high. Um, it's like three steps. Now here's what makes the matter even more interesting. At each of the steps, guess what happened? Snowball Earth glaciations. That's the two times in Earth history when we have the snowball Earths. And I just looked at that and said, that can't be a coincidence. That's just, that would be insane if that was just a coincidence. There must be a mechanism there. But before we understand that mechanism, we have to step back and think about what controls low oxygen in the first place? How does this work? Why was oxygen low? And why did it start? And initially people thought that um, the reason oxygen jumped up at the great oxidation event was because of the evolution of photosynthesis. But it turns out that's not true. People realized that cyanobacteria had been around for hundreds of millions of years before the great oxidation event. And so what we showed is, in fact, that's not right, that actually it was the glaciations themselves, perturbations to, you mentioned it, the phosphorus cycle. And the reason phosphorus is so important is because it's a nutrient for life, and it controls how much photosynthesis occurs overall. And so um, in a series of papers, Tom and I developed a theory for atmospheric oxygen. And I think it's, it's still an incredibly interesting and important question. Um, we've provided some hypotheses, but it still needs more work. We also wanted to ask more about your theoretical geochemistry work, specifically a project you did in the 1990s using atomic absorption spectroscopy. I'm going to try to summarize what I think is going on in this work, and then maybe you can tell us if I have it right or not. So this kind of spectroscopy essentially involves quantifying chemical elements in a sample by measuring the way in which it absorbs light. And you use this spectroscopy to measure the composition of carbonate fossils like coral, which in turn allows you to deduce the oxygen composition and the surface temperatures of seawater over time. How did you get interested in this project, and what were the key takeaways, preferably in layman terms? Absolutely. So, so when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, a friend of mine named Michael Moore was a grad student in paleontology. And he was trying to study corals. And in particular, he had been an English teacher in, in Indonesia. 
And so he spoke a little Indonesian. And um, he set up a project to go live on an island for a year and a half in Indonesia and collect samples of corals from the surrounding reefs and use the geochemistry of the corals to reconstruct the climate patterns. And Michael was a close friend, and so I decided to go with my girlfriend to visit him right when he got there, actually, right when he started his 18-month adventure. And we traveled to some remote places, and we actually found some fossil corals that were uplifted on reefs that were 120,000 years old. So we collected those, and I got a little more money to go back a year later, and that became a project. And then eventually, when I was at Princeton as an assistant professor, I got some money, and Michael and I traveled. We set off and first went to Egypt, and we collected corals from the Red Sea. And then we went to Nauru, which is in the Pacific, and collected corals from there. And then we went to the Solomon Islands and collected corals from there. And I got to say, for me, the science, there were good scientific projects for each one of those, but um, the the what an adventure that was to, to travel around the world with scuba equipment, diving on some of the most beautiful and remote reefs, reefs that today are under attack from climate change, from, from ocean warming that's causing them to bleach. Um, my children may not get to see some of those places, and I'm so fortunate that I was able to see them and see the magic of those coral reefs, the, the diversity of those ecosystems. So that was fabulous. Scientifically, though, one of the measurements that's really important for corals, people had shown that the ratio of strontium to calcium in corals, and to a lesser extent magnesium calcium, but especially strontium calcium, was, um, uh, was correlated with temperature. So if you measured strontium calcium in coral skeletons, you could reconstruct the temperature. Now you have to understand the coral skeleton adds about a centimeter every year. So it's a little bit like a tree ring, where the corals literally are banded and you can see year by year growth. And we were collecting cores of coral that were sometimes three or four meters tall. So you could go back three or 400 years into the past and look every month, you could drill a sample out every month and reconstruct monthly temperature patterns or rainfall patterns using oxygen isotopes to reconstruct what was happening in the climate. Um, the problem was that these strontium calcium measurements were very expensive. And a colleague of mine, an older professor at Columbia University, when I was at Princeton, had told me that, um, that he was gonna be able to dominate the field because he had this $2 million machine that nobody else could afford, and he was the one that was gonna be able to make these measurements quickly, and nobody else could do it. And that kind of pissed me off. I think I wanted to sort of figure out a way to do it really cheaply. So. One of the things I spent some of the money that Harvard gave me when I moved here, I spent about seventy or $80,000 and bought an, an optical spectrophotometer. And I had a hypothesis for a new way to measure these corals to get very high precision measurements of strontium calcium. Because the reason it was difficult to measure is it had to be very, very precise. And that paper that you're talking about is, is essentially the demonstration of that method that we could actually do this very, very precisely for an instrument that cost not even 10% of what uh, my colleague at Columbia had paid for his instrument. And it turns out that it was that technology was actually revolutionary. Now, uh, paleoclimatologists all over the world use this exact technology to make 
magnesium calcium measurements in foraminifera or, or strontium calcium measurements in corals. Um, they use it as their mainstay for reconstructing climate. And I got to say, that makes me very happy that, that that method sort of democratized the field and allowed everybody access to this. For our final question to close out the episode, as the director of Harvard's Center for the Environment, what are your hopes for how Harvard can play a role in the future of the battle against climate change? So I think Harvard plays an incredibly special role for three reasons in the world. First, and by far the most important, Harvard students are remarkable collectively. And so our job as educators to me is like a solemn responsibility to make sure that, that you are prepared for the challenges that you face in the world ahead. And one of the great challenges is certainly climate change. So I think that um, that's number one. Number two, uh, Harvard is incredible in the diversity of research and the excellence of the research. I am so spoiled by my colleagues across the university, whether it's my colleagues in climate science and earth and planetary sciences or in environmental science and engineering, or my colleagues at the Kennedy School or at the business school or at the law school or the School of Public Health, the Graduate School of Design. We have the most incredible people around this university. And one of my big efforts as director of the Center for the Environment was to try to bring that community together, actually make sure that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and that we know each other and work with each other and talk to each other. And that's really exciting to help catalyze. The third and final way is that Harvard is really influential in the world in that our faculty and our alumni, as we said, are accomplished, but we also have um, influence on Washington and on governments around the world in a way that no other university does. Um, we'll see that now that things maybe hopefully will return to normal in the new Biden administration. You know, more Harvard faculty and Harvard affiliated people will go to Washington than from any other university in the U.S. That was certainly true in the previous in the Obama administration. John Holdren was the science advisor. Ash Carter was the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Jody Freeman was the administration. Joe jo Aldi was in the administration. Jim Stock was in the administration. There were so many Harvard faculty involved. And that's very exciting. So I think through all of those ways, we have an opportunity to put our shoulder to the wheel and make progress on this important issue. Um, Harvard can't solve climate change. But Harvard can help guide the world and also prepare our students who together over time will solve climate change. And, and I think that's the right way to think about the role of this institution going forward. That's a wonderful way to end both this episode and the entire fall series of our podcast. Our goal with the Veritas Lab has been to explore the cutting edge of academic thought at Harvard and how it can make an impact on the world. And climate science is a perfect example of how research can directly affect policy and directly affect the well-being of our planet. So thank you so much, Professor Schrag. This has been such a thought-provoking and memorable conversation. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. As always, we're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana. And before we close out one last time, we'd like to say a few words of gratitude. 
Thank you to our amazing producer, Amanda Sue. Your creative genius has truly brought the Veritas Lab to life. Without you, this podcast would be nothing but an idea. Thank you to Ryan Gajarawala and Allison Lee, our multimedia chairs, for launching the Crimson's first ever podcast series. Thank you to the professors who have taken the time to teach us about their field and indulge our curiosity. And most of all, thank you to all of our listeners who've joined us on this wild journey over the past few months as we've set out to explore the incredible diversity of research going on at Harvard. We're so grateful for the opportunity to share our conversations with you, and we hope you've enjoyed the ride as much as we have. 